0: We're going to be resuming our series in the life of Joseph that we've been looking at for a number of weeks. We just had a few weeks break. Um, And we're going to be looking in Genesis chapter 42. Genesis is the first chapter of the Bible. Um, But before we get into the passage today, I just wanted to to bring us all up to speed with what has happened in the Joseph narrative so far. Um, And I don't want to spend too long doing it. So I'm going to try and do it all in 60 seconds. All right. So here we go. Joseph is one of 12 brothers with their father, Jacob, and Joseph had two dreams of his father and his brothers bowing down before him. He told these dreams to his brothers and his brothers got mad and jealous and so tried uh, sold him off into slavery while convincing his fa- their father that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. Joseph was then meanwhile taken off to Egypt and sold into slavery. And in his first job, he was then wrongfully imprisoned. And in prison, he met two of Pharaoh's the, the Pharaoh's staff and he interprets their dreams and, uh, and becomes known as a dream interpreter. Three years later, Joseph's still in prison, and the pharaoh of Egypt has two dreams that he needs interpreting. And so the pharaoh calls on Joseph's services and asks him to interpret his dreams. Joseph interprets them as there being seven years of plenty throughout the whole world, followed by seven years of famine, no food whatsoever, total disaster. And Pharaoh then promotes Joseph straight from jail to this job of being second in command of all of Egypt to look after the food management during the years of plenty to make sure they have enough food during the years of famine in Egypt. And that's where we find ourselves now. The years of plenty have finished and the years of famine have come about. So there is your quick 60 second summary of what has happened so far that brings us up to Genesis chapter 42. And I'm going to read from... uh, We're just going to move move through it, chunk uh, a little bit at a time rather than reading it all out because it's quite a long passage we're going to be looking at. So from verse 1 in chapter 42. The famine has just struck. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. And so Jacob here sends his uh, his sons off, his remaining sons, minus Benjamin, to Egypt to go and get some food because the famine has struck. But what we're meant to see, one of the things we're meant to see from this, this beginning is that while Joseph has been going through this kind of this transformation of epic proportions, the rest of his family haven't changed at all. We still have Jacob as this embittered old man. You kind of get the sniping and bristliness of his comments right at the beginning where he says to the brothers, why do you look at one another? And then we see that he still hasn't moved on from, and the, the wounds from Joseph and, and losing him still are raw after 20 years, that he doesn't trust his other sons to look after Benjamin, now his most precious son. And the brothers themselves, the fact that Jacob's saying, why are you looking at each other when the stakes are so high that they could die and none of them are taking responsibility, none of them have the, the maturity to step up and say, I'm gonna do something about this. The brothers are still immature. They still uh, choose not to take responsibility. And that leads us on to verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. This is is a massive moment. It has been 20 years since Joseph and his brothers have been together and now they are reunited. We know exactly what it is to be a people who are separated from one another. We know exactly what it is to be a people who long for reuniting and I don't know about you but I've been certainly thinking and dreaming about what we'll do when we get back together and you know barbecues and parties and things and, uh, and picturing what that might be and even making plans. But here we see no barbecues, no party streamers, no warm embraces as the brothers are brought back together. And that is because of what we read in verse eight. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And here we have the dramatic tension that sets up this chapter and the next few chapters to come, that Joseph sees his brothers and recognizes them and knows who they are. But the brothers, when they see this noble, powerful government official right before them and bow down before him, they have no idea. They have no idea that Joseph's even alive, let alone that this this man in front of them is the one that they sold into slavery 20 years ago and they now presume has passed away. And so we are beginning a deep drama that is going to unfold kind of slowly over the next few weeks as we look at it, but is a deep drama and is a drama of family reunion. And I don't know about you, but aren't you glad at this time that God is the God of family? that he is not a God of of separating people. He's not a God of isolation. He's not a God of quarantine, but he is the God of family. He's the God of reunion. He's the God of bringing his people back together from a a period of isolation and periods of being distant from one another to being together. We see it throughout scripture that the, the, the tone of scripture is that God's people are a people that are to be together. There to be family. One of Paul's favourite expressions for the church in the New Testament is the household of faith. That as we're in this time where we can't be together and we are isolated, that it's meant to create, I think, in us a longing and a dissatisfaction for what we have. It's meant to remind us of what we uh, what we have when we do get together together, and it's meant to cause our heart to long for that to come about. We're meant to think about online church and everything that we've got here and think, look, we're so grateful for it. It's so good for, what it, for this season, but this is not the way that God wants it to be for the long term. And I can't wait to get back to be physically together. And so Joseph then, upon seeing his brothers, hides his identity from them. We read in verse 7 that he treats them as strangers and he speaks roughly to them. And as we go through Joseph, the next few chapters in the narrative, we see that what Joseph really wants is he wants to be reunited with uh, his father, Jacob, and his other son, uh, Benjamin, who aren't here. And so what he does next is he kind of starts to send the brothers on a bit of a merry dance. He has this kind of elaborate back and forth where he sends them back to Canaan, and he then brings them back to Egypt, and then they go halfway back to Canaan, and then kind of back to Egypt. And at times it's a bit of a confusing what's Jack, jacob uh, joseph doing what are his motivations it's a bit laborious to read perhaps in first first sight and it begins here in verse 14 but joseph said to them it is as i said to you he's talking to the brothers you are spies by this you shall be tested by the life of pharaoh You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring back your brother while you remain confined. That your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh. Surely you are spies. And he puts them all together in custody for three days. So Benjamin, uh, Joseph, sorry, accuses. The brothers of being spies, which he knows isn't true but it's all a ruse and throws them into prison as a way of bringing of putting pressure on them and in, intimidating them to go and fetch Benjamin and bring them bring him to to joseph and right up to now Joseph has very much been the model of righteousness and godliness and, and what a godly leader should look like but now we're, starting, we're going to start to see Joseph doing some things that are quite confusing or certainly are open to a variety of different interpretations. Does Joseph mean to be spiteful there? Is he being vengeful? And we are starting to perhaps get a picture of a, a multi-layered Joseph. Even here, he speaks to his brothers harshly. He treats them as strangers. He starts to accuse them and then he starts to put puts them in prison to try and intimidate them. Now, this is by no means a fall from grace for Joseph. So you don't have to take your Joseph posters down. You don't have to throw away your, uh, your, your replica Technicolor dream coat by any means. But it's worth asking the question, why are we starting to see this side of Joseph now? And I think a lot of the answer is contained in verse 9. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. So Joseph sees his brothers and he remembers these dreams that God had given him 20 years ago. And he starts to think, and we as the readers start to to see and realise that the whole purpose of Joseph being brought to Egypt in slavery, the whole reason for him being given this crazy job opportunity and promotion beyond any of his wildest dreams when he was carted off in that caravan, even the whole reason for bringing about this famine across the land is so that he could bring his brother, God could bring his brothers to him and fulfil this dream that he gave to him 20 years ago. That here we are seeing God being totally faithful to his promises and showing he is in utter and complete control over all of the world events. This is no mere coincidence that the brothers happen to be here and they happen to meet Joseph. This is a divinely orchestrated event. As Everett Fox comments, the, the, the um, scholar, as he looks at these pas- this passage, God is the prime mover here. And what we see here is that the author has been quite intentional. What he's doing is at the beginning of this passage, he is really underlining the human side, the very human side of all of the different characters involved. We saw it right at the beginning with um, with Jacob, the embittered old man. We saw it with the brothers. They still haven't grown up. They're still not taking responsibility. But now we see it with Joseph. Now we see that even Joseph, this refined man who's been shaped by God and raised up by him as the chosen leader, even he is very flawed. And at the same time as underlining all of those the author is starting to bring to the forefront the divine activity of god and how he is moving all of the pieces and what the author is trying to to bring alive to us as the readers is the mystery of what we call the providence of god how somehow god is able to take these very broken very mixed people with all of these unclear motivations and impure motivations. These, these people who quite frankly at various different points just make quite stupid decisions and God is able to take all of that and all that they do and somehow just craft it all together and piece it all together in a way that brings about without any loss his perfect sovereign plan for his people. we remember that these are the people of promise. These, these brothers and, the, and Jacob, these 13 people, they are living with the promise given to Abraham. Right at the beginning of Genesis chapter 12, that God spoke to Abraham and said, I will make you into a great nation. Just a, an outright promise from God. It is going to happen, guaranteed, cast it in iron. And yet, as we look at them, we see 12 people, 13 people, sorry, who just can't get on with each other. And you think, how on earth are we going to get from these 12 flawed individuals to the great nation that God has promised? But what I love that we see here is that the hope of Israel and the hope of this nation is not now on, oh, we've got this great leader. This great leader has been formed into perfection and now we just need to follow him and and he will carry us through. No, even this great leader is flawed. God is showing us here that his perfect plans are not going to be accomplished by human endeavour and human effort. God is showing us that his sovereign perfect plans are only going to be accomplished by one way. That The hope of Israel is not in Joseph. The hope of Israel is that they have a wise, all-knowing, faithful, sovereign God, who is able even to take a family like this, of individuals who are fearful, of individuals who are immature, of individuals who are arrogant and marked by incompetence, he'll take them and form them into something holy, into something beautiful and something powerful, just as he wills it. This is really good news for us. I think it's really good news for us in two levels. Firstly, if you are someone who is marked by fear, if you are someone who feels like you lack gifting, or you're not quite up to it, you feel like you are very much an imperfect person, here we see God can use you, not just in a sort of marginal, fractional way, but he can use you in his perfect sovereign plan he can put you right front and center of all that he wants to do in fact if you look at the the picture of scripture it's almost a it's almost a requirement on your cv you need to be very flawed you need to lack lots of things and then god can use you in powerful ways but secondly and maybe even more encouraging for us at this time it shows us that our hope does not rest on our leaders it can be very easy, I find at this time, to look at the response of some of our world leaders and think, Oh, I, I really wish you did this, or I really wish you responded to the coronavirus situation like that, or lament some of the missed opportunities as you look back on some of the things that are reported in hindsight and and think, I, I, I'm not quite sure of your motivation. Are you, are, are you, you really, Do you really have the best interest of the British public at heart? Are you in this for yourself? Now, of course, we always want our leaders to make the best and most wise decisions. But I look at this and I get such confidence and I'm I'm reminded that our hope really is not in human leaders who will make the best and most perfect decisions. That our hope doesn't ultimately rest on human endeavor. It doesn't rest on scientists coming up with the vaccine and, and we need that, otherwise we are gonna be finished. No, ultimately, our hope rests on the fact that we have a powerful all-knowing faithful sovereign God and he is on the throne and he is able to take the yeah the, the good and the wise and the noble decisions made by our leaders and he's able to take the the evil and malicious actions of our leaders and everything in between and he's able to take them and craft them all together to perform exactly what he in his perfection, wills to come about. And specifically, what God is showing us here is that he is about crafting a nation for himself, a people for himself. And so for us as a church, as Revelation Church, we think, what is going to happen to us in this time? What is our, where is our confidence? Where is our hope? How do we know what our outlook looks like? Well, here we see he is about building his people and strengthening his people and advancing his people in times like this and it's not dependent on any single person's actions it's not dependent even on a collective effort how grateful are you that the health and the prosperity of revelation church does not rest on your wise leader making perfect decisions being able to get everything strategically bang on in every single point during this time No, it's not on me. It's not on any one of us. It's not on us just trying really, really hard. Our prosperity and us being taken forward depends entirely on him and we can trust in him. And so what we see here is that God is longing for a family reunion to come about. But before that is fully realized and where I want to spend our last 10 minutes or so is this interim period that they find themselves in, that we see in the brothers' lives through the rest of the chapter, is that there is something that God wants to do in the midst of this situation. And he's he's bringing them together in order to to make it happen. And we see it happen from verse 21. Just what God wants to do in them. So they've just been in the prison, they've just come out, And God is working his purposes in them. Verse 21. Then they said to one another, this is the brothers, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy that you did not listen? So now there comes a reckoning. For his blood. There, here is a deep and emotional admission of sin from the brothers. It's taken them 20 years but finally they start to take responsibility for what it is that they have done. Summed up quite starkly and honestly by them in verse 21 where they simply say we are guilty. They're recognizing there is sin here. There is something that needs dealing with, something that God needs to, that that we recognize before God, we are in the wrong. And it's just worth noting, these are God's covenant people. These are the people that he has made his promises to of building a nation. These are not just some random scallywags that happen to realize they have sinned. These are the people that the, the tribes of Israel forevermore are going to be named after these men. They are God's people. That that he is bringing to a conviction of sin. And he is leading his people here into this time of disruption in order to humble them. And I just think it's really interesting to look at the, the circumstances that they find themselves in as a people. They find themselves right in the midst of and disrupted by this global crisis that they are facing. And they find themselves, because they've been in prison, in a time of confinement. And they find themselves very unsure of what the future looks like for themselves you might be able to start to see some parallels with our situation and we see here God using this severe disruption that the brothers have been through to provoke to the surface this sin that has been with them for so long and it's been undealt with and suddenly it starts to come out that because of this disruption he this sin that they're so used to accommodating, so used to ignoring in their hearts. They are seeing with fresh eyes and have a desire to deal with it. I was chatting with um, some other Manchester pastors pastors just this last week and on Zoom, obviously, because it's 2020. And we were chatting about this situation and one of them described it like a, a pressure cooker. And I just thought that was a really helpful analogy that almost each of our houses at the moment are are pressure cookers and the longer that we find ourselves in them the more that we start to feel some kind of pressure on us and as this pressure increases I don't know about you but I, I find myself kind of ugly stuff starts to come out of me as this the pressure and as time goes on in this time this this weird space that we find ourselves in just has this unique ability it seems to to squeeze sin out of us that we didn't even really know was there but suddenly it happens and we see it just yesterday I was I was looking after the kids and um, obviously thinking through some of these these things and I just found myself getting more irritable and more angry at them uh, quicker and over things that I normally wouldn't. And just thought, what is going on in my heart? I wonder if your experience is similar. And I've never used a pressure cooker, um, but I have watched enough MasterChef to know that a, a pressure cooker essentially speeds up the speed at which something cooks and so something that would normally take a long time can be done in a very quick space of time and i just wonder if there might be something prophetic for us here that if we are if we allow ourselves to be honest with some of the the ugly stuff that we're starting to see about ourselves and we 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 take a humble look at our own heart and bring it to god that maybe we will see a uh, an accelerated progress and growth in God that uh, something that might take a long time in normal circumstances in this unique season could be accelerated as we own up to and and, and are honest with what is going on in our hearts and we see then in verse 28 or or verse 26 that God doesn't leave them in their sin he doesn't leave them in their conviction Joseph then does something uh, again that is quite ambiguous as to what his real intentions and motivations are. Um, he, he puts money back in their sack that, he had gi- that the brothers had given him to pay for the grain. It gets put back in their sacks. And we kept picking up in verse 26. Then the brothers loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack and he said to his brothers, my money has been put back here it is in the mouth of my sack at this their hearts failed them and they turned trembling to one another saying what is this that god has done this is a really significant moment for the brothers that just note how they don't say and turn on one another they don't start accusing one another and say oh, why didn't you pay the money to Joseph you must have forgotten or they don't say what kind of administrative or clerical error has happened here but immediately they say what is this that God has done to us but it's not just noble and righteous Joseph that is starting to see the providential hand of God move but even here the, the most godless characters that we've had in the narrative so far even they are starting to see there is a hand at work here there is a presence of God moving amongst us and directing this situation and this is the first time in the whole narrative that any of the brothers mention the name of God That here we see that God's plan is not to just sit back and point out sin from afar and leave them trapped in a place of guilt and a place of condemnation. But God's plan as he moves his hand on their life is to bring them to a place of conviction of sin, bring them to an awareness of the sin in their heart so that he can lead them to an awareness of himself. That he provokes this sin in them so that they turn to him, so that they look to him, that they see we are guilty before God and we we need to turn to him in fear and trembling. And as we'll see through as the chapters continue, God turns them to himself so that he can then lead them to the one that will be able to offer them total and complete forgiveness. That they will be able to meet the one who will be able to lift the weight of their sin from their shoulders. And so it is with us. God only ever exposes sin in our heart and only makes us feel the weight of it so that we turn to him, so that we have an increased and heightened awareness of him and so that he might lead us and and that we might run to the one who can offer us complete forgiveness of sins and lift our guilt from our shoulders, that we might turn once again to Jesus Christ and the cross of Christ. I love how Titus puts it in Titus chapter 3. He says he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit who he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. What I just love here is the imagery of, of being washed of our sin the washing of the gospel we even sung about it that the blood of jesus washing away our sins just the idea that because this this holy spirit has been richly poured out we can continually be washed in the gospel that whenever we feel conviction of sin we can be the invitation from jesus is to come to him and once again be cleansed and renewed and refreshed in the power of his gospel we can hear the voice coming down from heaven once again whatever sin we have whatever we have done whatever we bring to him we hear the voice booming down of forgiven 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 but actually we see here that conviction of sin is actually God's gift to us that the more we know of our sin the greater the opportunity for us to gaze on the cross of Christ To see that place where guilt has finally and fully been taken away. The place where sin itself was totally exposed for what it is and then fully and completely defeated and crushed. The more we know of our sin, the more we can experience and receive the grace and the kindness and the love of Jesus Christ. And it's this love and this forgiveness that the brothers are going to be receiving as the weeks go on. But for now, as they go back to Canaan and they go back and explain to their father, look, we need to take Benjamin back with us to Egypt. We see there's still a lot of work to do in this family. Verse 36, Jacob replies to them and says, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon's no more. And now you would take Benjamin. Accusing them not only of killing Joseph, but now Simeon and Benjamin as well that they want to kill. This is a family that still has very much work to be done by God. They're full of disunity, full of distrust. They need hope, they need reconciliation, they need healing. But the hand of God has begun to move on them. He has started to show that he really is the God of family. He really is the God of reunion. And it really doesn't matter to him how flawed and how broken the people are and the, the, the sons and daughters that he has to work with. That will not stop him bringing about his sovereign and perfect purposes for his people. And we'll see that in the coming weeks.